Home is where you feel safe. For me, home is a、uh, family. Number one,、uh, my parents. Let me be specific. Home is a、uh, a sense of belonging to a land, a country,、uh, to people, to community. Home is where I feel safe, loved, and cared for. Welcome to Hometown, your weekly Lent and Easter podcast on refugee welcome in the Episcopal Church and across the United States. I'm Allison Duval, and I'm Kendall Martin, and welcome to week two of our podcast. We're so glad you're here. Hometown is a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries, the refugee resettlement and welcome ministry of the Episcopal Church. You can learn more about our work on our website, episcopalmigrationministries.org. And on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, we are EMM Refugees. This podcast is part of the Good Book Club initiative, which invites all Episcopalians to come together to read all of Luke and Acts throughout Lent and Easter 2018. You can find the daily readings, resources, and much more at GoodBookClub.org. Find them on Facebook, the Good Book Club. If this is your first time tuning in. We encourage you to listen to our debut episode from last week, so you can learn more about what we hope to do with the podcast. Each episode will be a little bit different. Last week, we featured a beautiful scripture reflection on the first week of the Good Book Club readings, and then we delved a bit into macro-level information about the global refugee crisis, and then briefly discussed the refugee crisis in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. This week, we'll share more about the refugee crisis, why resettlement happens. And about Episcopal Migration Ministries as a prelude to the main event of today's episode, an interview with our theme song composer Abraham Mwenda Ikando. I'm really looking forward to that. Before we start, Allison, people have asked us where we got the name Hometown for our podcast. So where did that come from? Great question, Kendall. This week's scripture readings for the Good Book Club are the Gospel of Luke, chapter four, verse fourteen, through Luke chapter seven. The beginning of this selection, Luke four, verses fourteen through thirty, is one of my favorite passages in Scripture because Jesus says really challenging things, and as a result, he almost gets thrown off a cliff. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> Jesus has just been tempted and tested by Satan in the wilderness, and then journeys to Nazareth and goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stands to read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah: "The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, "Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." All around are amazed at what they have heard, and at first it appears in the text that Jesus received a fairly positive reception to these prophetic words. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. I love that part. But I love even more what follows just a few verses later. Just a line or two later, we see the crowd quickly turn on Jesus as he says harder things, difficult things, and things that would probably make us feel uncomfortable and squirmy and even defensive. 
Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. The text tells us that all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They were so furious, in fact, that they got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Mysteriously and miraculously, Jesus passes through the crowd and he goes on his way. It's a surprising story. It really is. And, you know, Kendall, I don't remember this story from (laughs) Sunday school. I was a a good, godly play child at my church, and I don't remember ever hearing this story from my godly play teachers. I, I think, you know, as we listen to it, it demands that we consider how the story applies to us now. Jesus' audience is perturbed, at the very least, that he's talking about God's prophets being sent to people that they would have considered other, the widow in Zarephath, the healing of Naaman, the Syrian. Who is the widow in Zarephath to us? Who is Naaman the Syrian? And what does that mean for us? Exactly. I think scripture requires, even demands, that we ask those questions. So anyway, Kendall, to answer (laughs) the question you asked minutes ago, the podcast name comes from this part of Luke's gospel, where Jesus says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. It makes me think, who does God send to us today to speak prophetic truth? And do we listen? Allison, remind us of the ground we covered last episode, what we learned about refugees and resettlement. Sure. In episode one, we discussed the scale of the global refugee crisis, the legal definition of refugee, and then we described the three durable solutions to refugee crises. So voluntary repatriation, local integration, or resettlement. That's right. In 2016, only 37 countries participated in the United Nations Resettlement Program and accepted refugees through resettlement or humanitarian admission. Resettlement is only available to refugees who meet certain criteria and are in particularly vulnerable situations. Sadly, there's much more need of resettlement than there are resettlement spots available. The UN estimates that roughly 1 million refugees are eligible for resettlement. But there are so few spots offered by the 37 resettlement countries that fewer than 1% of the world's refugees will ever be resettled. 
Each resettlement country has their own processing priorities and eligibility requirements. After a refugee is given refugee status and identified by the UN as needing the safety of resettlement, the UN will refer the case to an appropriate resettlement country. Then processing of that continues according to that country's system. Refugees who are referred to the United States for admission and approved for resettlement arrive through what's called the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, or the USRAP. The USRAP was created in 1980 by a piece of legislation called the Refugee Act, which was signed into law by President Jimmy Carter. The program has had long-standing bipartisan support, and to date, more refugees have been resettled by Republican administrations than by Democratic ones. The USRAP is both an international and domestic interagency effort and a public-private partnership involving a number of governmental and non-governmental partners both overseas and in the United States. All the players are rather like a mosaic. The biggest tile in the mosaic, if you will, is the U.S. Department of State and its Bureau for Population, Refugees, and Migration, or PRM. PRM manages the overall program and takes the lead in proposing admission ceilings and processing priorities. PRM manages a program called Reception and Placement in partnership with the national resettlement agencies like EMM, which in turn provides services and support to refugees in the first months after their arrival. PRM also supports resettlement support centers abroad that carry out administrative functions, like processing refugee cases for resettlement to the U.S. Each resettlement country carries out processing and security screening following its own protocols. In the United States, there is no category of entrant screened more thoroughly by our security apparatus than refugees admitted through the USRAP. That brings us to another large tile in the mosaic, the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS. DHS U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, has responsibility for adjudicating applications for refugee status and reviewing case decisions. DHS works with other security agencies, like the National Counterterrorism Center, the FBI, and the Department of Defense, to screen refugees using biometric and biographic data, and runs concurrent checks in multiple security databases. The lengthy security screening process takes between 18 to 24 months to complete if there are not interruptions. Once refugees are approved to travel and arrive in the U.S., DHS Bureau of Customs and Border Protection again screens refugees at the port of entry. At any point along the way, if security concerns arise, refugees will not be permitted to travel, nor will they be admitted to the U.S. Once refugees arrive, they receive initial assistance through the Reception and Placement Program Allison mentioned. In addition, some refugees enroll in additional federal or state-supported programs. That brings us to that last big tile in the mosaic, the Federal Department of Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement, or ORR. ORR manages two programs that EMM and other national resettlement agencies implement, the Matching Grant and Preferred Communities Programs. We'll talk more about these on another episode. Moving past the federal mosaic, after refugees are approved for admission, but before they travel, they are matched with a national resettlement agency like EMM, which in turn matches them with an appropriate local affiliate office for resettlement. 
The national agencies and their local partners are a large, colorful, and diverse mosaic with interesting histories. Six of the nine resettlement agencies are faith-based, many tracing their history back to the World War II era and the activism and advocacy of faith communities for refugees who were then fleeing Nazi Europe. We'll talk more about these histories in a later podcast episode. Now on to the main event of today's episode, our interview with Abraham Mwenda Ikondo. As we said, when refugees are resettled to the United States, they are matched with a national agency who then sponsors them in coordination with a local partner agency. It was especially meaningful to work with Abraham on the podcast theme song and then to interview him about his life and his music because Abraham and his family were resettled by Episcopal Migration Ministries. So without further ado, we're honored to bring you our interview with Abraham Mwenda Ikondo. The audio quality of this interview is not the best, so you might want to turn up your speakers. We are so excited that we have Abraham Mwenda with us today. Abraham lives in Lexington, Kentucky, where I live, and he is the composer of our theme song for Hometown. And Abraham, we are just so excited to have you with us today. Awesome. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> And we have so much to talk with you about, um, both about um, your your original home, where you came from, but also um, the amazing community you've built here in Lexington, Kentucky, and your work in defining home for yourself today. Um, so would you start by telling us a little bit about your childhood, um, where you were born, and the early part of your life before you came to the U.S.? Um, I was born in Congo. Uh... Uh, then my family had to move to Kenya because of war and stuff. But that's where I was raised, uh, Nairobi. It's uh, one of the biggest cities in, in one of the biggest urbanized cities in Africa. It's really, it's really, really big. It's like New York. <laughs> so I was raised there, um, and then I moved here when I was 21, which was uh, probably four years ago, 2013. Um, so I spent most of my childhood in Kenya. That's uh, yeah. And tell us about. Um what it's like growing up in Nairobi, you know, where did you go to school? What, what did you like to do? How did you develop your talent for music? I went to school, <clears throat> I went, I mean, I went to different kind of school. I felt like I was changing schools every semester because we used to move a lot because we got evicted a lot <laughs> when, I was, when I was growing up. Uh, we didn't really live in, say, in one apartment for sometimes not even a month. So, I mean, not even two months or three months. We'd get evicted a lot, so... Wherever we'd go, I'd get in another school, a different school, a different school, all the time. Uh, but then, later on, I ended up going to Kifaru Primary. <laughs> it's a weird word. It means rhino. Kifaru means rhino. Um, in, in which language? In Swahili. In Swahili. Swahili, yeah. Um, so I went there until I graduated high school. And then I went to Jamhuri High School, which is the biggest uh, boys' day school in Eastern Central Africa. Oh, wow. And, yeah, to go there, you really need to have, like, some really good grades, which was, I, I got lucky. Um, uh, I went to school with scholarships. Uh, people, uh, so many people pay for kids these days, they, they wonder where the money goes. It actually goes to good use, because I went to school with these programs, you know, all, all of high school, actually all of primary and high school. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, growing up in Nairobi was great. It just, um, uh, I feel like it's a different life depending on your status. If you're a citizen, it's a different life from a kid who's not a citizen because they have different realities of things. So, 
Um, but for the most part, I had a normal life. We, I played with, uh, we played soccer, we played everything. We made our own toys. We made our own cars using, uh, what do they call, wires, stuff like that. Oh, very cool. Uh, 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 different, the tif- difference between growing up there and the way I see kids growing up here is, like, outside here, there's nobody. In Africa, outside, there's everybody. <laughs> Everyone's outside doing something, p- playing, running around, screaming. It's so quiet out here. Out there, it's just... <laughs> we should say we're recording. Abraham and I are in my living room in Lexington, Kentucky. And you're right, my neighborhood's fairly <laughs> dead right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, that, that's kind of that's the environment I grew up in. Uh, everybody's trying to, trying to do something. Yeah. Well, and when you talk about... Nairobi, it would make me imagine, assume that your family, um, when you fled the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, you all lived in a situation like what we would call urban refugees. We did. did. Yeah, we didn't live in the camps. Uh, um, My dad, my dad is a preacher and uh, he had opportunities to preach in Nairobi, so we just stayed. And, um, you know, right now, Right now, when I look back and like try to figure out how we made it, I really salute my parents because I think they're I think they're awesome. Because uh, I guess now I'm a grown up and I pay bills, and I'm like I got <laughs> I literally I have a job, I have everything, I got the music, I have all these things, but I can't even imagine how we survived all those years without them having like a regular job. Like my mom would do like some kinds of businesses, she'd sell fish today, sell sell. Uh, uh, vegetables tomorrow <laughs> she'll sell shoes the next day it was just like it's crazy sorry <laughs> i don't know we survived somehow in the urban uh urban center of nairobi we didn't go to the camps like kakuma and Dadab and all these different camps that they have in nairobi in kenya so um which which honestly that is a different experience on my part than other refugees who were brought up in or went to the camp and uh you move here in America and you meet all of them and you're all in one spot and they're talking about all these things, you're like, you went through all that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I thought I had it bad, you know? So it's crazy. Mm. But that's how. That's an interesting perspective. Did your um, passion for music start as a young child? Or when did that start? As far as I can remember, seven years old. Um, that's the first time I ever tr- attempted to write a song. Uh, until today, I freestyle. I don't write on pen and paper. So I started freestyling when I was seven, and I just freest- I was just uh, we didn't have electric electricity at our house because my parents couldn't afford it at that time. Uh, so we were just sitting and bored, and I just started with uh, singing a bunch of stuff, freestyling. Uh, and then my mom was just shaking her head like she's heard the song before. And then she was like, what is that song? I need to hear that song. She was like, I don't know. I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, why don't you write it down? Oh, she went and got a paper and started writing it down. But then the, the next day, we didn't remember the, the melody, but we remembered the words. I was like, ah, I wish we could remember the melody. And I never remembered the melody for that one. So from there on, yeah, I just kept freestyling. And basically, that's, that was the beginning of me writing songs. Um, but it didn't really take shape until high school, when I realized I could express myself way better with coming up with songs than just standing in front of people and talking. So I developed it, worked on it. Um, but then when I moved here in 2013, um, all those years I had been doing music just for, for the fun of it and honestly just singing whatever. But when I moved here, I had stopped singing completely. 
um, because I just um, the honest reason was we were really really poor. <laughs> we were poor in Africa, and I was like, this music never really helped me a lot. Um, I tried a lot of things, so many different places and venues to play and all that stuff, and I just never got anything back. So I was like, you know, music let me down. I'm not going to do it again. So when I moved here, I wasn't doing music. And then one of our friends, Carissa, told me, you should do it for the refugees. And I was like, huh, <laughs> that's, that's something. I thought about it, and honestly, I went home and researched, and I watched a bunch of documentaries on Congo, and that was the first time I can say that I honestly got purpose behind my music. I, that's the first day I realized that I want to be a storyteller and tell stories of my, my own stories, other people's stories. And so 2013, I can say, is the year that I really discovered myself as far as what I want to do with music. So that's the journey of music. It's a long one. Sorry. Oh, no, no. That's amazing. Well, and yeah. Carissa is a mutual friend yeah. of ours that we know. And yeah. I know um, from following Carissa and following you and your music, I know that you're good friends with her family and you've developed so many friendships and relationships. And I told you before we started the interview today, yeah. I played um, the promo podcast for <laughs> um, for Hometown for some friends and they said, oh my gosh, is that Abraham Mawinda? So it's amazing to hear that your story went from not doing music to being inspired to do music and being such an important member of this community now, the people recognized you. Wow, I didn't realize that, but thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so talk, talk a little bit about um, the meaning of home for you. Uh, the meaning of home, the song, or home, home? Let's do both. Uh, the meaning of, oh man, I've struggled with that so much. I didn't even realize how much I struggled with it until I talked to a teacher and she was telling me about DACA and all this, uh, the new developments of like kids being told to go back, go back to their countries and stuff. And that's when I went home and started really thinking about it. And then I realized just how much I have never, ever felt like I belong anywhere. Honestly, until I moved to Lexington. Um, so home for me, personally, I feel like everybody has their own definition. But for me, personally, I can't really say it's a place. I feel like it's in experiences that I have in these different places. I am a Congolese by birth, you know? Congolese is... Is not the place. Congo is the place. Congolese is the culture. It's the when I when I see how we dress. It's when I see what we eat or the music we listen to or the dances that we do. That's that is the home. That's what I define as home. Is not the place because it's those different experiences that I take from that place. I grew up in Nairobi. I can't really call that home because I was reminded every day, go back to your country. <laughs> now because people are mean, it's just the reality of things. You know, some people don't understand things like war. Uh, those particular kids that, and we were kids anyway, but it's the experiences that I have from Nairobi that uh, we are all related de depending on like the, the kind of experiences that we have. Uh, you can go to, uh, what's the type of dances that you do? I do Irish dance. Irish dance. You can go to Ireland yeah. and just by the culture and the experiences that you, both of you share, you feel like you, you are connected or you're from the same place. You're like, oh, I feel home, and not because you're from that place, but because you share the experiences. That's, that's, that's how I see it. Mm -hmm. So the experiences that I have in Lexington make this home. It's in those different experiences that I have with those different people and the culture behind it. That's what home is, in my opinion. Because um, I have days when I'm like, if I say home is Congo, then my Kenyan friends go like, huh. If I say home is Kenya, my Congolese friends go, huh. <laughs> if I come to Lexington, 
You know, Lexington has pretty much given me everything I always dreamt about in my whole life. And then I'm like, this is not my home. I was like, ah, you know, it's, yeah, it's just a conflict. Of, so, yeah. The song where it's home now, it's a clear, it's just, I think it's pretty direct. Uh, it's probably one of the most direct songs I've ever written. I just uh, took my experiences and just put them to a song and all these questions that I, people grew up, uh, people asked me when I was growing up. Um, like on the second verse, there's you look you look like this and you talk like that. Uh, I look totally look Congolese. Maybe you guys can't realize it, but I know we're all African, like every other African. But we know there's a way I can look at somebody and go, "That guy's a Congolese." So to my Congolese friends, I look Congolese, but when I open my mouth to speak, I don't sound like them. So they're like, "Okay, I'm confused. Where are you from exactly?" <laughs> you know, because I sound exactly Kenyan. So because I was raised there. Um, so I, I basically just took those experiences and put them to a song and um, how can it be my parents country of origin when all my life this foreign land is all I've known um, that specific line was de- uh, inspired by the conversation I had about Dhaka uh, asking honestly directly asking those guys that are telling these kids to go to their homes how are you telling it's the, are you telling them it's the, uh, their parents Country of birth is their home when this is what they've known. They know America is their home their whole lives. This is where they have memories of, experiences, their first Christmas, their first <laughs> birthday, and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that's what the song Home was really about, is about trying to find, um, answering questions to my own self of where home is and other people who are trying to figure it out. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um. You talked about doing music for the storytelling aspect and it being a helpful vehicle to tell stories and reach out to other refugees. And I'm curious what benefits you see to telling your story and telling your story through music. Um, the first one is, like I said, when, I'm, when I moved here, I met other refugees, former refugees. We're not refugees anymore. That used to be part of our lives. I met other former refugees who had it worse than I did. And, and that made me realize that it, there's even more refugees out there who's, who, who are not here with us. Uh, they're still in those, stuck in those places, living the lives of uh, you know, maybe not even having hope of seeing an, another day or something like that. Um, so me telling their story, I'm doing my part, you know. And honestly, it started as a... As a Survivor's guilt. When I started like writing, I was like, I have to do something. Why am I here? Why are they there? I owe them something. I owe this to them. But now it's not. It's 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 it moved from being survivor's guilt to become and being a responsibility, not just become being a responsibility, but to becoming a passion to really speak out for these people. Because um, unless people speak, you know, unless we share our stories, we can't go blaming other people for not knowing. Uh, why don't you know this happens in the world? Why, why are you so ignorant? Why do you have internet in, the, in your house and you don't know there's war in Congo? <laughs> you know, where yourself, you're just keeping quiet. You don't talk about it and you've actually lived it. You know, it's not, it's not good. With music, I use music because that's the way, the best way I know how to use, to do, to do, to tell stories. Um, and music is just, music is powerful. Music is, it cuts borders. Like, doesn't even matter what language you're speaking, you know? I don't even have to be in the place to speak. Somebody can hear the song and it just changes their mind and um, they see another perspective to something. So 
I think that's why I use music, honestly. I'd rather sing than give a speech. <laughs> yeah. So we're living in a particularly strange cultural moment in the United States. Yeah. One that many of us never expected to see. Through your music and through your life and through your witness, um, what do you hope Americans would learn from um, your work? I feel like I feel like it can be really it can be really misinterpreted as being cheesy, telling people uh, you you guys need to really really love each other. You know, you guys need to truly stand by each other. Or uh, let's stop racial discrimination. Let's stop looking down on the poor. Start caring for your brother. It's it can easily sound cheesy if you haven't experienced those things. But I think one of the things that really propels me uh, and encourages me to keep going and is because I have experienced some of these things myself. So when, I, when I'm talking about it, I know exactly what I'm talking about. But my encouragement is even for the people that they feel like they've never experienced hunger or poverty or racial discrimination or all this crazy thing, tribalism or all these things that are going on in the world. Um, they should know my message and what I want to like show in my music is that it can happen to anyone. Anyone. No one is no one is immune to all these things. Today you're good, tomorrow you're not. And it's not like I'm being pessimistic. I'm just it's the reality of life. You know, you don't wake up. Nobody wakes up and goes, Oh, today I really want to die hungry today. Like, oh I really wish uh walk and break out here so somebody can shoot me in the leg. You know, it doesn't you don't you don't go wishing all that on yourself unless you're crazy, but like <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um it but it happens, it happens to everybody. So the culture, the culture here, the American culture, I feel like it's great. I honestly don't have anything against it. I just feel like we can work on some things and not just Amer just as Americans but as everybody on being more gracious and trying to put ourselves in other people's shoes um, and trying to sometimes just, just listen. So being gracious and putting yourself in other people's shoes, I feel like that's the beginning of even truly understanding what people are going through. Even if you wouldn't even begin, understand as much, you can show some, you can empathize a little bit. So, yeah. Thank you. You've talked about Lexington very much feeling like home for you. And I'm curious, from the time that you resettled until now, where you've really found community in Lexington? Um, I found community everywhere. <laughs> Literally everywhere. Um, my job. Except my neighborhood. There's nobody walking by. <laughs> There's yeah. no community. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. My job, basically, I have friends from my job. I have friends from... Uh, from KRM, the Kentucky Refugee Ministries. I have friends from uh, the coffee houses that I go to <laughs> for my chai tea latte. <laughs> I, your chai tea latte. <laughs> I have I have community from church. Uh, I've gone. Sometimes I go to Consolidated. Sometimes I go. Sometimes I go to Southland. Uh, sometimes I go to the African churches that we have here. Uh, traditional African churches. Um, there's community everywhere, but. The one thing that stands out mostly, I feel like I've connected with so many people just because of music. It's kind of like helped me to build relationships with people that I wouldn't have otherwise built relationships with people like like you guys. Like I kind of maybe wouldn't be here 
in a way, oh, you wouldn't have known about me if it wasn't for music. And there's a lot of people that I've come across like that first. It starts with just music and then it builds up to, to something else, which is great and better. And that's how I like it, actually. When it just gets more than music, it's great. It's awesome. It is awesome. Yeah. Your music travels so far. Well, would this be a good segue to in invite you to play? Where is home? Yeah, sure. Would you be willing? Yep. You good? So, hometown listeners, we're so excited to introduce you to a live playing of the theme song for our podcast, Where is Home by Abraham Melinda. I've been singing all day, so I, <clears throat> my voice might be gone. They say it's the West, home is best. But where is home? Is it the place that embraced me, the place that raised me, or the place where I was born? So where is home? Where is home? My whole life I had to answer the question, where are you from? Cause you look kinda different and you kinda talk funny, you must be far from home. So where is home? Where is home? Home is where you can kick your feet up and relax in peace It's got nothing to do with all the politics of how you look and speak Home is where the love is real no matter who you be Home is where the heart is pa -da -da -da. Home is where the heart is They say East to West, home is best But where is home? How can it be my parents' country of origin When all my life is for the land is all I've known So where is home, yeah, where is home, yeah My whole life I had to answer the question Where do you belong? Cause you look like this, but you talk like that Hey, you got us guessing wrong So where is home, where is home, Home is where you can kick your feet up and relax in peace It's got nothing to do with all the politics of how you look and speak Home is where the love is real no matter who you be Home is where the heart is pa -da -da -da, bum, pa -da -da -da, bum, pa -da. Home is where the heart is pa -da -da -da, bum, pa -da -da, bum, pa -da. So you can catch me Central Kentucky Sipping on some chai tea latte <laughs> You can catch me in Los Angeles Dollar and a dream in my pocket Catch me in Nairobi cruising in on my tattoo Catch me in Kinshasa eating fufu na pondu You can catch me in Central Kentucky Sipping on some chai tea latte You can catch me in Los Angeles Dollar and a dream in my pocket Catch me in Nairobi cruising in on my tattoo Catch me in Kinshasa eating fufu na pondu <laughs> Cause home is where you can kick your feet up and relax in peace It's got nothing to do with all the politics of how you look and speak Home is where the love is real no matter who you be Home is where the heart is pa -da -da -da, bum, pa -da -da -da, bum, pa -da. Thank you, thank you <laughs> Thank you so much 
Thank you all for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed learning more about Abraham, his life, his music, and hearing that awesome live studio set. I just can't get the song out of my head. I sing to it all the time, and I dance around the house to it, <laughs> much to my husband's chagrin. <laughs> Me too. Well, make sure to tune in next week and tell your friends about the Hometown Podcast. Until then, support Abraham and his music. Visit abrahambowindamusic.com and follow him on Instagram at Mwindagram. To support Episcopal Migration Ministries and our work of welcome, you can make a gift at episcopalmigrationministries.org backslash give. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter where we are EMM Refugees. Until next week, peace be with you and all those you consider home. <laughs>